You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. at cybersecurity on U.S. Election Day, details on the operator threat activity, seasonal and secular trends in insider threats, a look at influence operators in the hybrid war, Ben Yellen reviews election security and misinformation, Ann Johnson from Afternoon Cyber Tea speaks with Dr. Ryan Louie about the growing issue of mental illness among cybersecurity professionals. And hey, everybody, Mr. Hush Puppy is back in the news and back in the slammer, the hooskow, the big house. You get the picture. Sabbatical at Club Fed. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Tuesday, November 8th, 2022. Today is election day in the U.S. Have you voted, Americans? In most places, you've been able to vote early or even vote by mail. But traditionalists and procrastinators, suddenly seized by a sense of civic responsibility, have been schlepping to the polls since early this morning. CISA went into the final day of voting with confidence that the elections wouldn't be disrupted by cyber attacks that sought to directly attack voting. CISA is holding a series of updates for the media throughout the day, and we're sitting in on them. But as we publish this daily podcast, no unusual or dangerous threats have emerged. There are, of course, scattered reports of a machine not working or a poll watcher's tablet going down, but these are all well down in the ordinary noise of accidents and not the result of any attack on voting systems. On the other hand... Influence operations, of course, continue. The AP reports that the increasingly high-profile Russian oligarch Yevgeny Prigozhin, proprietor of both the troll-farming Internet Research Agency and the mercenary army that does business as the Wagner Group, said yesterday, Gentlemen, we have interfered, are interfering, and will interfere, carefully, precisely, surgically, and in our own way, as we know how to do. It's an unusually frank avowal of what U.S. sources have long charged. But come on, Yevgeny Viktorich, this isn't really what you'd call news. You could save it for TASS or RT. The White House press secretary dismissed Mr. Pergozin's remarks yesterday, saying that they do not tell us anything new or surprising. Surely the most undeniably true thing ever uttered in a press conference. 
How effective such influence operations will be remains to be seen, and they can be counted on to continue long after the election is over. Their goal, remember, is fundamentally to demoralize, sow confusion, and widen pre-existing fissures in civil society. Group IB has published a detailed account of the threat group Operator. That's Operator, but instead of a T, there's a number one which has used off-the-shelf tools to steal between $11 million and $30 million from its victims, mostly located in Francophone regions of Africa since 2019. The researchers include advice on defense, and their accounts afford an interesting look at what a determined criminal operator can do with commodity tools traded in the C2C market. Researchers at DTEX have published a study on insider threats— finding that unsanctioned third-party work on corporate devices has risen by nearly 200% over the past 12 months. The researchers warn that workforce engagement declines by up to 50% in the weeks before the holiday season. Engagement also remains affected during the first week back after the holidays. Departing employees represent a distinct challenge— DTEX observed that research and creation of resignation letters increased by 20% in the first half of 2022, increasing the potential for disgruntled employees to cause harm to the business. The study also found that 12% of departing employees take sensitive information with them when they leave the company. So, HR departments, look to your offboarding. Another pro tip, we're just spitballing here, but... Maybe firing people by email is not the best approach. We come now to the tale of two cyber auxiliaries in the ongoing hybrid war Russia is waging against Ukraine. We've seen the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation's assessment last week of Russia's Killnet hacktivist auxiliary as posing more of a psychological than a tangible threat to the networks it hits with distributed denial-of-service attacks. Yesterday, the record by Recorded Future offered some notes on Killnet's interests and targeting. The threat actor is mostly interested in hostile nations found in the near abroad, now independent former Soviet republics, especially Estonia and Moldova, and former members of the defunct Soviet-led Warsaw Pact, in particular Bulgaria and Poland. Officials in those countries essentially agree with the FBI— Killnet's operations were punitive in their intent, and while the group crowed high in its social media channels, the actual effects they achieved didn't rise above the now-familiar nuisance level. That probably doesn't matter, and so needn't be regarded as a failure. At this point in the hybrid war, these sorts of cyber attacks are best regarded as a form of influence operation, intended more to menace and intimidate than to hobble or disrupt. And things seem similar on the Ukrainian side. The record also reports that Ukraine's auxiliary IT army claims to have successfully breached databases belonging to Russia's central bank. The central bank itself has said publicly that the data breach is all hooey. As quoted in Positive Technologies' Security Lab blog, the bank said, Not a single information system of the Bank of Russia has been hacked. The material the IT Army dumped online, the central bank claimed, was all anodyne, publicly available information. If the central bank isn't fibbing, and they may not be, then the IT Army is doing something the FBI says Kilnet's been doing for some time, boasting in a way calculated 
to mess with its audience's mind. In its Telegram channel, the IT Army explained its objective in hacking Russian banks, stating, The goal remains the same as for all banks, to create problems in the processing of payments, to delay the fulfillment of financial obligations under contracts, and to sow doubts among those who receive payments through it. So, like the activities of their Russian counterparts, the IT Army in this campaign seems interested principally in influence. And finally, hey everybody, do you remember Ramon Abbas? Probably not. But you may remember him under his influencer persona, Ray Hushpuppy. Anywho, Mr. Hushpuppy, a Nigerian citizen, was sentenced to 11 years in a federal prison on charges related to his money laundering activities. The judge also ordered him to pay $1.7 million in restitution to two fraud victims. In his salad days, Mr. Hushpuppy called himself the billionaire Gucci master, according to Forbes. After getting his criminal start as what the Nigerians call a yahoo boy, engaging in romance scams, he began to flaunt his wealth as a social media flexor, prancing and dancing his way into the hearts and wallets of many who wished that they too might live the life of villas, supercars, fine jewelry, and designer clothes Mr. Hushpuppy displayed. Sure, flexing on Instagram isn't the best way of flying under the Fed's radar, but on the other hand, people are drawn to that sort of thing in the vague hope that some of the magic might rub off. Mr. Hushpuppy's later crimes involve laundering money on behalf of North Korean threat actors who engage in fraud on behalf of their cash-strapped pariah government. The BBC reports that two Nigerian imams wrote letters asking for leniency on Mr. Hushpuppy's behalf, noting his generosity to widows, orphans, and food banks, and Mr. Hushpuppy himself expressed his regrets and contrition. Come what may, the judges still gave him 135 months in Club Fed, plenty of time to repent at his own leisure. Coming up after the break, Ben Yellen reviews election security and misinformation. Ann Johnson from the Afternoon Cyber Tea Podcast speaks with Dr. Ryan Louie about the growing issue of mental illness among cybersecurity professionals. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. 
Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Ann Johnson from Microsoft is the host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast. And in a recent episode, she speaks with Dr. Ryan Louie about the growing issue of mental illness among cybersecurity professionals. I know our listeners are curious to learn about the link between psychiatry and cybersecurity. And to bring us along on the journey, can you talk a little bit about your background? When and why did this interest begin for you? How did you land on cybersecurity? And I love that cyber with a PSY is a focus area. And can you break it all down for us? Yes. Um, so I'm a, a psychiatrist. So my main work is working with patients in the clinic setting. I, I treat uh, patients' conditions such as depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD, anxiety, several other types of uh, mental health conditions. Before this uh, clinic work, I used to work in a downtown San Francisco hospital and inpatient locked psychiatric unit. I learned a lot from that patient population because they taught me a lot of things. They said that once they left the safety of the hospital, they were kind of on their own. There was a lot of things they didn't know where to go to, um, a lot of different things that were uh, might have been dangerous or not safe. And I would ask them, what's your safety plan? Where do you go for help? If you need assistance, who do you go to? It got me thinking about the bigger picture of what it means to be mentally well and to be safe. I love technology, and as I started seeing how technology is so interwoven into everyday's, uh, everyday life, um, I started to think about that a person's safety and security in terms of their mind and their well-being is actually closely linked to the technology they use. So hence, I was thinking about cybersecurity in the traditional sense, with a CY for cyber, into a PSY being psychiatry and cybersecurity. And I started to merge the two and think about it in that way. So can you unpack some of the issues commonly seen and what aspects of cybersecurity are contributing to them and how unique are they to this industry? Definitely the COVID-19 pandemic has amplified everything that was already existing, both in terms of the stressors in cybersecurity and also the stressors in mental health. COVID-19 and the pandemic made everything that much more magnified and intense. So in thinking about this question, I oftentimes compare the world of cybersecurity with people in healthcare. Both of our fields, in the medical fields and the cybersecurity fields, share a lot of things in common. For instance, we often work under extreme time pressure. We don't have a lot of information all the time. We have to make decisions with, uh, without all the, all the information or things we wanted to know about, but we, it demands a decision, so we have to decide. It can be very 
stressful. Oftentimes there are limited resources, limited time, limited staff, and, and there are things from left field that we may not even know about. We always have to deal with those uh, situations. And for cybersecurity professionals and people in healthcare, there's the constant need to want to be a team player. So with all that baseline, let's pivot a bit and talk about how we can better take care of ourselves and our teams. And if we could start with leaders, when it comes to identifying someone who might be struggling, what signs should leaders be look out for? And what can leaders do to best support the mental health and well-being of their teams? In thinking about what leaders can do, I think back to this time when I was a medical student doing a rotation in, in one of my clinical clerkships. On the first day of orientation, all the interns and the residents and the medical students like myself gathered around in a circle with our attending physician, who was the head and who would be writing our recommendation and our, giving our grades. He said right at the outset, I said, we work as a team. If anyone feels overwhelmed, there's too much stuff on their plate, I want you to just freely say, raise your hand, say, hey, I got too much, I need some help. There will be no penalties for doing that. It's not going to show up on your grade sheet or your, your, or your letter or your evaluation. And just like that, he lifted up that onus of, of, of pressure from everyone. And we worked really well. We worked great as a team. That's Ann Johnson from Microsoft, host of the Afternoon Cyber Tea podcast, You can hear more of this interview and the entire afternoon Cyber Tea collection of shows here at thecyberwire.com. Joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security and also my co-host over on the Caveat Podcast. Hello, Ben. Welcome back. Hello, Dave. So it is election day (laughs) as we record this and air this. Uh, I voted this morning. I I believe you have, did you voted ahead of time? I did. I I voted by mail. Always a satisfying uh, feeling to Fill out your ballot, put it in the drop box, uh, and know that that you've made a difference. It sounds corny, and it is very corny. Yeah, uh, but I love voting. I think yeah. it's I think it's a, I think it's actually fun, uh, even if, though it's also a civic duty. I agree. I and I it does. Uh, I it does sound corny, but I do get a, a nice little feeling of civic pride when I do it every time, and I think it's important. So let's talk about uh, security here. I mean, where. As we go through Election Day, where are we finding ourselves? We've heard from many of the the agencies who keep track of these things. Where do we stand? So I think when people think about election security issues, they think about corrupted voting systems. They think of potential cyber attacks on voter rolls from uh, illicit foreign actors uh, or agents of, of these foreign enemies, the Chinese government, the Russian government. From what our federal agencies have said, uh, our election systems are relatively safe, are quite safe. Largely, uh, that's due to the work of agencies like CISA, and you certainly give them credit for it. But largely, Mm -hmm. it's due to the decentralized nature of our election system. It might be easy uh, or doable to hack into a single county's uh, election system or a single jurisdiction, Um, but we run elections through 50 states, a bunch of different counties. It is a very decentralized process. So it would be hard to alter the results on on such a scale when you would have to penetrate 
a bunch of different uh, security protocols in order to make a difference in an election. Yeah. Uh, so I think we do have a good degree of, of confidence in the integrity of our voting systems. The problem is this scourge of misinformation. Hmm. Uh, and I understand why misinformation exists on this subject. We don't actually see our ballots getting counted at a clerk's office. They don't do that on TV. So we kind of have to have a level of trust in the system that our votes are going to be counted, that everybody's votes are going to be counted, that we're going to have a fair and equitable election, one person, one vote, and uh, we're going to end up at a fair outcome. People take cues from their political leaders, and when elite political actors cast a doubt on the integrity of our elections, that ends up kind of causing the system to collapse on itself. And one of the ways these political actors do that is to take relatively normal things and make them seem conspiratorial. Hmm. Uh, so, for example, uh, we saw in 2020, it was a pandemic. A lot of people voted by mail. And in several states, uh, particularly in the Midwest, the uh, election clerks were barred by law from opening up mail ballots until election day. Hmm. Uh, so the first ballots counted were ballots uh, from people who voted on election day itself, and um, most people who voted on election day were voting for Donald Trump, uh, largely because he told his voters to vote on election day. Right. Uh, so there was this mirage that he was ahead, and really that was just because mail votes hadn't been counted. Uh. At a certain point in the middle of the night, they did count the mail-in ballots. Uh, and, you know, we know from all available evidence that there was nothing nefarious about it. There were a big batch of mail ballots. They fed them into the machine. Yeah. But a lot of political leaders tried to imply that these were vote dumps in the middle of the night, even mm -hmm. though it was literally just counting ballots. And it was all happening according to the rules that had been agreed to ahead of time. Right. So there's a more sophisticated critique that says, well, these state legislatures changed rules in the middle of an election uh, season because of the pandemic, mm. or state courts intervened to change the rules. Those certainly might have some legitimacy, although that needs to be fought out in a court of law, not in a court of public opinion. Right. But very simple things like the fact that mail-in ball ballots were counted later than uh, election day ballots that can lead people to conspiratorial thinking. Uh, and it's, I think, the duty of our political leaders to ensure trust in our electoral system uh, and not to sow doubts based on something that's really rather unremarkable. I mean, in all elections, there have been differing modes of voting and certain precincts are counted before other precincts. That's just the way we we count votes. Yeah. Uh, so this scourge of misinformation and conspiracy, I think, ends up uh, having a really detrimental effect because people lose faith in our electoral system. Well, that's the local stuff or the, the, the provincial stuff, the, the call that's coming from inside the house. I think we've also seen stories that um, the international actors who are looking to stir things up here in the U.S., they really fired up their engines over the past week or so as well to, to send out their own brand of disinformation. Right. I mean, we had a—was it a Russian oligarch uh, or somebody involved with the Kremlin admit that Russia has resumed efforts at trying to influence U.S. elections? Yeah. Uh, there are ways they can influence elections through social media. Um, we heard a lot about that in 2016 just by 
sowing discord, uh, posting provocative memes that might turn people against certain candidates or certain causes. Right. Uh, it's hard to really measure how much of an effect that actually has. Um, and then there are larger-scale uh, disinformation efforts, uh, the most notable being hacking into uh, the Democratic National Committee's emails in 2016. Yeah. Uh, so there, that that is a risk that certainly uh, is still present and, and out there. I almost think it's more important for us to uh, fix the problems within our own house before we worry about what happens with foreign actors. Um, just because I think we have to restore trust in our electoral system and trust that federal agencies uh, are going to be looking out for these uh, foreign actors and, and threats and that it's our responsibility to have faith in the integrity of our system. Yeah. Well, get out there and vote, right? Absolutely. <laughs> By the time you hear this, the polls might already uh, have closed. But right, right. if not, if you are a uh, on-time Daily Cyberwire podcast listener, you might still have a couple of hours. So there you go. Get That's out there. Right. Do your civic duty. All right. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology, and also apparently drilling holes and pulling cables. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Maria Varmatsis, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Catherine Murphy, Janine Daly, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, Simone Petrella, and I'm Dave Bittner, desperate for a proper recording studio. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you here tomorrow. 